Explore S. Time traveling through history, one era at a time. I'm Kate Armstrong. When we last left our Roman ladies, Octavia and Livia, their lives were changing fast. Octavia, watching her husband Mark Antony tank himself over in Egypt, killing himself for the woman he loved. And Livia, watching Octavian knock all of his opponents down at last. After all that bloodshed and drama, he's finally been left as the last man standing in the fight for control over Rome. So what happens now? Octavian becomes Augustus, Rome's very first emperor, and the ladies become the imperial legends. Grab your purple stola, your laurel wreath, and your best first lady wave. Let's go traveling. But first, a shout out to some of my patrons. My newest pirate queen, Hannah, and a few more. Kelsey, Brittany, Lauren, Louise, Jamie, Amy, Aaron, and Justine. And my newest lady president, Phil, and a few more for good measure. Caitlin, Caroline C., Amy, Brendan, Elizabeth G., Nancy, Eve, and Kat. And to the Imperators and Augustas who give me more each month than I ask for. Avery, Karen C., Jessica S., Dylan, and Jackie C. Becoming a patron helps me keep the show going, and you'll get access to sneak peeks, discounts on merch, interviews, Q&As, and exclusive bonus episodes. To find out more, just head over to my website. to Rome. It's 30 BCE. So now we've got an empress and everything is fine? Of course not. Remember that Rome has long loathed kings and feared them. That's part of how Octavian got public support to war against Cleopatra, after all. And what is an emperor if not a king? We're not about to make a clean or quick transition from republic to empire. In the wake of years of strife, no one can see what exactly Rome is going to become. Is the republic just a dream, lost forever? If it is, then what path are we walking down now? There is no reason to expect the Roman people would be excited about suddenly having an emperor. But after two decades of constant civil war, everyone is exhausted, tired of internal struggle, and more than ready to accept peace, law, and order. This is Octavian's time to shine, if only he can spin it. He is consul when he arrives back in Rome from Egypt. That's the highest government position in the land, which is handy as it means he's already powerful. No need to make any sudden moves. But he can't bank on being elected to that post over and over forever. Others have tried it, and it never goes well. What he needs is a long game. A part of that game is to start building a myth around himself and his family. An image that will make him into a hero, related to the gods and Rome's founding fathers, and one that will loom too large to tear down. To that end, he hires a bunch of poets to sing his praises. The real centerpiece is the epic Aeneid, written by Virgil, begun not long after Octavian gets back to Rome. When it finally comes out, it paints his rise to power as not only great, but inevitable. How can anyone be in doubt? In 28, Octavian and his main man Agrippa get busy restoring order. They start by annulling the laws that the Second Triumvirate put in place, which, understandably, are not that popular. It's as if he's trying to say, The old Octavian is dead. I'm not a fighter anymore. 
I'm a statesman. And in 27, he makes a big move by renouncing all his king-like powers before the Senate, promising that he'll restore the Republic to its former glory. This is sweet, sweet music to the Senate's ears, who just want to keep their seats at the political table. In gratitude, they give him the name Augustus, divinely favored or revered one. This is what we'll be calling him from now on. But Augustus himself makes sure everyone calls him Princeps instead, which means first citizen. They also ask him to stay consul and serve as it more or less for life. I'm just like you, see? No king here. But I am officially the boss of of you and you and you and also you. Augustus is now on top for real. But what about the ladies in his life? What do they get? Well, Octavia gets Mark Antony's love children. She takes in and raises his twins with Cleopatra, adding them to the pile with the kids he already had with Fulvia. Imagine that household full of a raucous baby gang comprised almost entirely of your husband's kids with other women. Sign me up. But she seems to do it willingly. In Rome, maternalism is deemed a natural female state, so good matrons are expected to raise children left motherless. Surrogacy and fostering are embedded in Roman ideas of womanhood. Rome's mythical founders, Romulus and Remus, were once raised by a foster mother themselves in the form of a she-wolf. So if Octavia has the urge to complain, she keeps it firmly under wraps. As for Livia, she's not technically empress. There is no equivalent word in Latin, actually. And she won't get the title Augusta for another 40 years or so. Instead, she's called Princeps Femina, which is akin to First Lady. She's perhaps the most exalted woman in the whole of the Roman Empire, and she's just stepped into a more public role than anyone before her. Her ascension marks an attitude shift towards women, too, seeing them as more capable, but also perhaps a greater threat. As our guest time traveler, Dr. Rhiannon Evans, says, It seems to me that the imperial period is very very bothered about women's behavior. Um, That writers of the imperial period are really uh, uptight about women. There are a few reasons for that. One of them is that in the Republic, men had a lot more power, I think. They had had all the magistracies. Now, women don't start getting magistracies in the empire, but because you have one man in charge in the imperial period, his household kind of has more influence because the power is consolidated in one man that power is you know it's overwhelming and the women around him therefore have more influence and more authority part of what wins augustus all that power is his promise to make rome great again to clean up the city with new buildings and better standards of living but also to bring back the strong moral fiber and ye old family values that many think it's lacking To be that guy, he has to make sure that his family is the very model of propriety. Later in life, Augustus will warn his daughter and granddaughters not to say or do anything underhand, or which might not be reported in the daily chronicles. He puts them all up on a pedestal, giving them honors few women in Rome have known before them, but also a very long way to fall if they're to stumble, which, of course, some of them will. Augustus chooses to keep living in his house on the Palatine Hill rather than any kind of royal-type palace situation. 
everyone knows where the first family lives, and so they are constantly on display. There's wife Livia, of course, and his sister Octavia and her brood of miscellaneous children, and also Augustus's now 10-year-old daughter Julia. Like first ladies and prime minister's wives in our era, these women will have very little privacy. Everything they do is watched and marked. In keeping with his conservative image, Augustus dresses frugally, as do his ladies. They don't have time for lots of fussing over hair and makeup. He makes sure that everyone is fully aware that his woolen clothes are hand-woven at home by his ladies. Weaving is considered the most honorable of matronly duties, so Augustus encourages his ladies to spend a lot of time doing it, making sure to put their looms by the large double doors so that passers-by are sure to see. This is part of his story that she is weaving the clothes, and the women of his household are weaving the clothes for him. Whereas, you know, what do you think? I think they had slaves doing all of that, and she did it occasionally as a kind of, to appear to be doing this. Um, I think she played well into that narrative for him, and she apparently advised him a lot, and he appreciated her advice. But this image of Augustus's women flitting around in simple clothes, elegant pearls, and doing the Roman equivalent of baking chocolate chip cookies in full makeup doesn't quite match up with the fact that they have hundreds of servants. A funerary vault discovered later will contain the remains of some 90 people who work directly for Livia. Hairdressers, doorkeepers, masseuses, window cleaners, and even someone to set her pearls. Which makes total sense for the First Lady of Rome. Every outfit she wears will be scrutinized and scoured for meaning, which is why she needs at least two attendants to look after her ceremonial dress. We even know the name of one servant, Parmeno, whose sole job it is to look after her purple clothes. Fancy! Augustus, for his part, knows his wife is high value, and not just for her looks and skill at pretend weaving. But how much influence does she have on his politics? It's hard to say. One thing we know is that, if she has an opinion, she isn't walking around town freely voicing it. Livia has seen what happens to women who try to take the reins on their husband's politics. Sister Octavia knows it doesn't pay to complain. So they stay behind the scenes, but that doesn't mean they aren't influencing the budding Roman Empire in a myriad of interesting ways. For one, when Augustus goes abroad, touring Gaul and Spain, he takes Livia with him. It's not the thing to take your wife with you on overseas trips, and the fact that he does so speaks to two things. That he appreciates having her around, and that he sees her as an important aspect of his PR campaign. Like the wife of a presidential hopeful, she goes out with him on the campaign trail, cutting ribbons and waving that killer first lady wave. She goes in style, too, with an army, a mule-drawn litter, and plenty of ladies-in-waiting. And she meets important women abroad, too, and bonds with them, creating further diplomatic ties between nations. Here's some bonus episode crossover for you. Remember the truly terrible King Herod of Judea and his sneaky, scheming sister Salome? Well, when the Roman couple travel to Judea, she and Livia become fast friends and will write letters to each other for the rest of their lives. So maybe Salome wasn't all bad? Livia clearly takes interest in many of the people she meets on these visits. Sometimes she even intervenes with her husband on their behalf. Take the residents of the island of Samos, who write to Augustus to say that they want their independence from imperial rule. He writes them back to decline, even though... I am well disposed to you, and should like to do a favor to my wife who is active in your behalf. Years later, though, he changes his mind and grants them independence anyway. 
Is this Livia's doing? Maybe, but we'll never know it. Livia knows better than to whisper in her husband's ear, at least where other people can see her. On the home front, she continues to shine out as an example of chaste and upstanding womanhood, furthering Augustus's image of his family as morally upright in all things. There's a story about what happens when several men accidentally wander into Livia's eyeline while naked. Just a bit of light streaking through the Roman streets, boys? This is the kind of thing that can get a guy killed, but she spares their lives. Boys, please, she supposedly says, and of course, I'm paraphrasing. I'm so chaste that naked men are nothing more to me than statues. And then there's this. Augustus makes a habit of writing many of his conversations with people in a little notebook he keeps wrapped in his toga. That's why we have this speech from Livia, advising her husband not to kill a man charged with conspiring to overthrow him. I have some advice to give you. That is, if you are willing to receive it and will not censor me, because I, though a woman, dare suggest to you something which no one else, even your most intimate friends, would dare to suggest. I have an equal share in your blessings and your ills, and as long as you are safe, I also have my part in reigning. Whereas if you come to harm, may the gods forbid, I shall perish with you. I give you my opinion to the effect that you should not inflict the death penalty on these men. The sword surely cannot accomplish everything for you. For people don't become more attached to anyone because of the vengeance they seem meted out to others, but they become more hostile because of their fears. Heed me, therefore, dearest, and change your course. Does she actually say this? We can't be sure, but Augustus certainly wants us to think so. This reminds me of the custom, in far later centuries, of queens throwing themselves down at the feet of their kingly husbands to beg on behalf of someone else, asking publicly for mercy so the king can show it without it looking like weakness. If true, it shows that Livia has a keen political mind and knows how to manage her husband. And she does it in a way that wins her praise in comparisons to Cornelia, that famous chaste model of Roman womanhood. But I have no doubt that Livia is a savvy negotiator, a persuasive debater, and a pretty smooth operator. And I think Augustus loves her all the more for it. Is it really love between Livia and Augustus? It's hard for us to know. There's powerful evidence in the fact that he never divorces her when we know he has no problem ditching his ladies. They stay together for the rest of their lives. She and Augustus had no children together. He had no son. All right, so he had to keep adopting people. And in a lot of late Republican marriages, that would have meant instant divorce because you want to remarry, all right? The Romans monogamy, he can't be married to two women at once. So if he wants a legitimate heir, he'd have to marry somebody else. And he doesn't do that, which means that he saw some benefit in being married to Livia. And it must have been the advice she could give, the, her status, she comes from an extremely aristocratic family, that she must bring something to this relationship and to the, the huge revolution that he's engineering in Roman society that is worth maintaining. So there may well have been a lot of private affection between them, but she must be working for him politically too. Suetonius says that she is the one woman whom he truly loved until his death. Despite his philandering. Suetonius also tells us that in Augustus's later years, Livia even helps procure attractive virgins for him, as he has a particular passion for plucking their flowers. Oh my! 
Someone interviewing her near the end of her life reports her saying that her influence with her husband was made by being scrupulously chaste herself, doing gladly whatever pleased him, not meddling in any of his affairs, and in particular by pretending neither to hear or to notice the favorites that were the objects of his passion. This sounds like something a lady only says when she knows her words are going down for posterity. But they suggest that, when it comes to PR spin, Livia knows just as well as Augustus exactly how to play the game. One of the things Augustus is proud of is how he transforms Rome's skyline. I discovered Rome a city of brick. He'll later brag. And left it a city of marble. He makes sure a lot of those buildings and statues stand as testament to his might. One of these is the Portico of Octavia, a public colonnade named after his sister. Discoveries there lead us to believe that he had a statue of a goddess relabeled as one of Cornelia, the famous Republic-era matron, and put it in Octavia's portico to link the two ladies together. Several more lady-sponsored buildings follow. Livia makes her mark on monuments too, most notably Augustus's Era Passis, or the Altar of Peace. It's the first state monument in Rome to feature women and children. Her hair is loose under her veil, making her look more like a goddess than a mortal. She and her husband are the only ones wearing laurel wreaths. We don't really have very many statues of women until this point, certainly women who are still alive. And this is the first time that we have those public portrayals of women, and that is part of Augustus and his dynasty because they're members of his family that are, that are being portrayed in public. So this is cementing their position as basically the royal family of Rome. So she's playing her part in that very effectively. These statues are kind of like the billboards of our era. They mean that everyone knows what Livia looks like, and every curve and fashion choice is observed and emulated. They set a template for other ambitious women to follow. One of her legacies is in constructing this image that we can still see because it's in museums all around the world of a woman, you know, it's part of the Augustan makeover of that real beautiful classical look which rejected all of that, let's try and look old from the Republic, you know, old is respectable. Women having public statues, also not entirely respectable. So that is something that changes and all the empresses after that, they will have a public persona in that way. They, you know, their, their image can be displayed in public. They might appear on coins. They do appear on coins. I guess they become known. They become part of the public consciousness much more than women did back in the Republic. And Livia is the vital part of that transition. In our episodes on a Roman gal's everyday life, we heard about a woman named Eumachia. This daughter of a Pompeian brickmaker marries into an influential family, then uses her new money dollar dollar bills to become a public benefactor, sponsoring all sorts of buildings. The building of Eumachia is right in the city's forum. It holds a statue of Eumachia herself, dedicated by the Fuller's Guild. You know, those guys who clean our clothes with many things, including pee. Some scholars believe Eumachia's statue is intentionally crafted to look like Livia. It's like styling your hair after the most popular girl in your grade to be like, See? I'm cool. I can totally rock tiny cornrows. She styles her hair in stone, just like Livia and Octavia, with a traditional notice hairstyle, where the hair is parted into three, with the lower two sides tied into a bun at the back and the middle one looped up into a pompadour-like situation. 
This links Eumachia to the empire's most proper, respectable matrons. And actually her building in the forum even has motifs on it that clearly refer to an Augustan altar. So she is looking as, at, towards the imperial family as the kind of style gurus of the time and almost certainly modelling herself on Livia and members of the imperial family. And that's not a trivial thing, not just, it's, it's not just that it's not like the stuff you find in magazines. It is important that her her influence is broader than just being sort of contained within one household because she's got that kind of power. But Livia isn't just showing up in public spaces in marble form. She is funding public buildings too, both religious and otherwise. She restores a temple of the Bonadea, that mysterious female goddess we met in previous episodes. She builds the Michelum Livier, a public market. But perhaps the most impressive is the Porticus Livier, which turns into one of Rome's top places to see and be seen. And Livia left, she, she paid for, presumably, a portico right in the centre of Rome, right beside one of the most important theatres of Rome, so lots of p- people would have been congregating there, and that's got her name on it. This isn't a trivial detail. Having your name on coins and buildings in such a public space means that people will recognize her and talk about her. They'll say that she's provided something for the public good. This kind of name recognition makes Livia an influential figure, and it reflects well on her husband. She's playing smoothly into his myth-making game. By this point, Augustus is doing some great things for the Empire. His slow and steady consolidation of power is going pretty well. But the Julio-Claudians have a problem. They don't have any kids together. Livia does deliver a baby, but sadly it's born too early for ancient medicine to save. Every time Octavian gets ill, which is often, this issue weighs heavily on his shoulders. When he's gone, who's going to carry on his legacy? What will happen to Rome if he's no longer there to be in charge? Rest assured, he's not going to pass his title down to his daughter Julia. A woman in charge? Don't be insane. This is a good place to pause real quick and talk about the Julio-Claudian family tree because it's about to get pretty confusing. I find the visuals help, so I've made a graphic for you and posted it in the show notes, but let's try to boil it down audio style. It all starts with Augustus and Octavia. They form the tree's two main branches. Augustus has one daughter who we've already met. Octavia, meanwhile, has kids with several husbands. Livia has her two sons, Tiberius and Drusus, with her first husband, and so they're in the mix as well. To keep all the money and the power in the family, they swiftly start marrying their children off to each other's. Throw in the fact that many have the same name, and it's easy to get lost, but I'll do my best to guide you through it. So who are our candidates? There's Tiberius Claudius Nero, Livia's eldest son with her first husband. Livia's lobbying pretty hard for that one. But there is also Marcus Claudius Marcellus, Octavius's eldest son. The boys are about the same age. Both were chosen to ride beside Augustus in his chariot during the triumphs after his return from Actium. But while Marcellus is cheerful of mind and disposition, Tiberius is pale and sullen. There's also the awkward fact that Tiberius isn't related to Augustus by blood. An adopted son, yes, and in Rome, that does matter. But so does biological family trees. So more and more, he leans towards Marcellus. In 25, Augustus is like, Let's marry Marcellus to my 14-year-old daughter. They're cousins, but that's fine. Let's keep it all in the family. 
The emperor is out of town when the wedding happens, so his studly buddy Agrippa steps in to give the bride away. A few years from now, this is going to be a little awkward. But before we get there, let's meet Julia properly. We know very little about her childhood, but from what we'll learn about her later, it's clear she grows up outspoken, full of passion, wit, and fire. Macrobius tells us that she has a love of letters and a considerable store of learning. Given that the leading lights of the day are coming and going from her fancy house on the Palatine, it's not all that hard to believe. She probably doesn't mind that public attention, though she can't always love the judgment that comes with it. And having Rome's first emperor as your father is constricting in the worst kind of way. He's incredibly controlling and, it seems, incredibly absent. He kept them from contact with strangers, says Suetonius, to the point that he wrote to Lucius Vinicius, a noble and distinguished young man, that he had behaved badly when I went to visit my daughter at Baiae. Does she want to marry her cousin Marcellus? Who knows? But when Augustus says she's to marry, she has nothing to do but grin and bear it. He's her paterfamilias, after all. In some ways, he's the father of Rome as well. At least she can count on it being a pretty lavish party. The first official imperial wedding makes Marcellus the heir apparent, Octavia the mother to the future emperor, and Julia its potential next empress. But it isn't long before tragedy strikes. Just two years later, 20-year-old Marcellus dies. Augustus is devastated, but Octavia takes mourning to a whole new level. She will mourn her son for the rest of her life. She refuses to see anyone except her friend, the poet Virgil. In his Aeneid, there's a scene where Marcellus's ghost walks by as part of a parade of heroes. Apparently, Octavia is so overcome when she hears it that she swoons right in Augustus's lap. Meanwhile, ugly rumors are swirling about Marcellus's untimely demise. Angry that her son Tiberius was passed over, they say, Livia had him poisoned. A jealous woman behaving badly on emotional impulse? What a refreshing new storyline. The ancient world has never heard that one before. These rumors tap into a dark vein of the Roman psyche. The idea that because women keep the keys to the kitchen, they have the power to rip the family apart from within. We see it in the mythical stories of Circe and Medea, and we see it in the work of a Roman satirist, writing to sons to beware of their mothers. I warn you, watch out for your lives and don't trust a single dish. Those pastries steam darkly with maternal poison. A lot of people don't believe the whispers, but a later writer, Seneca, makes it seem like Octavia does. She and Livia fall out badly after Marcellus's death. Is it because she thinks Livia killed her son? Because Livia thinks Octavia's being totally extra about her grieving? Or because they just don't see eye to eye on other things? Political or personal, we just don't know. We don't know how Julia feels about her cousin-husband's passing either, but you know she ain't gonna stay single for long. You'd think Augustus might give her hand to one of Livia's sons, Tiberius or Drusus, but he decides to go in a whole new direction. Remember the strapping Marcus Agrippa who walked her down the aisle as a substitute dad? Yup, that guy. Augustus loves Agrippa. He knows his best friend is the only man who can maintain the loyalty of the army. And he's become so powerful at this point, his advisors warn him that he's either got to kill him or tie him to the Julio-Claudian tree. 
So in 21, Julia marries him. Never mind that he's 42 and already married to Octavia's eldest daughter, Claudia Marcella Major. We can fix that. Apparently, the ever-obliging Octavia gives her blessing to the match. There must be something between the new couple, as in their nine years together, Agrippa and Julia have five kids, turning them into the keepers of the Julio-Claudian dynasty's future. They have two sons, an heir and a spare, if you will, Gaius in 20 BCE and Lucius in 17. Augustus once again skips over Livia's sons in favor of setting his grandsons up as his successors, officially adopting them both, just like Caesar adopted him. He's clearly taken with the idea of grooming them. He puts their faces on coins when they're just seven and four, and their mom, Julia, pictured beside them. Julia's now the first daughter he always wanted, being set up as the future first mother. There'll be another son and two daughters, Julia Minor and Agrippina Major. Don't forget that last, because she's going to feature prominently later. Julia often goes with her husband on his public tours, where she is as much praised for her fertility and brood of cute, shiny children as he is for his military prowess. Her life is looking pretty sweet, for now. I want to tell you about a brand new podcast I have the pleasure of producing. It's called Amy Kaufman on Writing. Every week, best-selling fiction author Amy Kaufman gives you a bite-sized gem of wisdom about the craft of writing. Being a writer myself, I can tell you that her advice is so illuminating, approachable, and really helpful. Whether you're just starting out on your writing journey or already well on your way, it doesn't hurt that Amy has one of the most soothing, confident voices you're ever going to spend 10 minutes listening to. If you're a reader interested in how writers craft their stories, or a writer who wants to grow their craft, then this show's definitely for you. Go check it out wherever you get your podcasts. Augustus clearly has some strong and influential women in his family circle. So it's interesting that, when it comes to women's roles, he seems to want them as constrained as possible. Take his stance on women at gladiatorial games. While formerly women had been used to attend gladiatorial shows together with men, Suetonius tells us, the Emperor Augustus ordered that they could only attend if they were accompanied and if they sat in the highest rows. So, basically, Augustus sticks women in the nosebleed section. Thanks, bro. He gives the Vestal Virgins special seats, but otherwise seems uncomfortable with the idea of women taking in violent spectacle. Suetonius tells us, He kept women away from the athletic displays. Indeed, during the pontifical games, he postponed till the following morning a boxing match that had been called for and issued an edict to the effect that women should come to this theatre before the fifth hour. Rude. He's all about promoting more conservative family values, so it's no surprise when, starting in 18 BCE, he decides to turn that stance into a legal reality. The marriage rate in Rome is dwindling. People aren't having babies like they used to. They're spending way too much time with their side pieces. In some, there's a sense that the empire's aristocracy is falling into moral decay. Women are sort of blamed for what has gone wrong with the Republic. All right, so the Republic had fallen apart. It had been extremely bloody, whole successions of civil wars, lots of families just torn apart and, you know, so much conflict. And the Romans really struggled to think about why, when they were so powerful, they kind of imploded. And it's not just women, but certainly a big part of that 
that narrative that the Romans told themselves of a state that has has had everything and has fallen into luxury and become kind of dissipate is women's behavior, that women were acting in this very dissolute way. He introduces a series of controversial laws, collectively called the Leges Juliae, or the Julian Laws, meant to solidify the social hierarchy and preserve Rome's class system. As Dr. Evans says, So the Augustan marriage laws were brought in for the first time in 18 BCE, and then there seems to have been another law a few years later, which suggests to me it wasn't really working. But the the two that were brought in the first time around are about, from my point of view, I think they're about constraining women and what they can do. So this is an attempt to, and it's part of a kind of concerted effort by Augustus to show that he's doing something about this perceived problem. It it is part of this kind of PR uh, move that Augustus makes to bring Roman society back to itself, and he's completely effective with the spin. They are given some powerful incentives to have children, but if they break the law, they also bear the brunt of its most brutal punishments. Let's break these laws down. To try and up the morality bar, they work to encourage legal marriage. Specifically, they make it mandatory for Romans to get hitched. Men between 25 and 60 and women between 20 and 50. If they don't, they have to pay higher taxes. Here's a snippet from a charming speech Augustus makes about it in 17 BCE. If we could survive without a wife, citizens of Rome, all of us would do without that nuisance. But since nature has so decreed that we cannot manage comfortably with them, nor live in any way without them, we must plan for our lasting preservation rather than our temporary pleasure. To which I imagine Livia muttering sotto voce. Thanks, I guess. So, under these new laws, all women under 50 are obligated to be married to someone. Imagine, for a moment, that you were required by law to be married. In the first round of the law, those who get divorced have six months to remarry. Widowers have a year, and if a lady happens to turn down a proposal, she has exactly 18 months to find someone else. No pressure! Suddenly, everyone's on the hunt for young brides. Men aren't allowed to marry underage girls, by which I mean under the legal age of 12. Yikes. But they can get engaged to one as young as 10, and often do to avoid paying these taxes. Remember how we talked about a woman becoming sui juris, independent of male control under the law? When Livia's father died, her life was no longer run by a paterfamilias, but her husband has a certain amount of control just the same. But Augustus makes it so that if a woman has three children, she's able to become legally emancipated, even if her husband is living. A baby bonus, if you will. So that's kind of a goal to go for, is if you've had three legitimate children, because his marriage laws were very much about trying to enshrine that model of the family, stop people committing adultery, this is what was wrong with Roman society, he thought then you could have... So clearly people wanted this. They wanted to attain this position of legal freedom. And that meant she could conduct business under her own name. You know, she had... And the Romans are obsessed with legal business. They're obsessed with wills. She could do all of that and buy and sell. Which Roman women, if they had property, they could kind of do anyway. Technically, it was always under guardianship. That means she doesn't need a tutela or male signatory to conduct business. And that's pretty powerful. So is Augustus doing women a favor here, giving them a path to greater freedom, or are these laws actually holding them back? 
Let's ask Dr. Evans. It's very difficult for me to see the Augustan marriage laws as, as giving women more freedom. I guess if you were in that special position where you had had three children and it got you to that status, I mean, it's still very much dependent on, upon playing the Augustan game, as it were. Playing that game means having three kids in a time when having babies is a dangerous proposition, when you might be married to someone you don't care much for. And many children die in their first years of life, which doesn't count. For women of the lower classes, the rule is four children. And just like in our time, there are women who can't have children or struggle to. And there's an even darker side to the law. Ready? If a woman is caught in adultery, and it is pretty much how it's thought of, then her husband has to divorce her. If he doesn't divorce her, then he can be prosecuted as a pimp. Because clearly if he doesn't care enough to divorce her, then that's what he's doing. He's pimping her out. He should divorce her and he will get most of her property or certainly she will lose, I think, at least two thirds of her property. And she and her lover are exiled to different islands. And for the ladies, it gets worse. If a father catches his daughter cheating on her husband under his roof, then he's allowed to kill her and her lover. A husband, by contrast, can kill his wife's side piece, but not his wife if he catches them. This makes sense when you remember that the father is the head of the household. But don't worry, as the law states, A husband who kills his wife when caught with an adulterer should be punished more leniently for the reason that he committed the act through impatience caused by just suffering. The harlot made me do it. Super compelling defense. Of course, not everyone is down with these harsh legal changes. The writer Ovid, for one, spends years mocking Augustus. In response to the laws, he writes up tongue-in-cheek tips and tricks for women on how to secretly flirt with men at dinner parties without your husband catching you. There are also public demonstrations from those who want the law repealed. One of these includes a woman named Vistilia, who very publicly registers herself as a prostitute, she says, so she can avoid any of his adultery charges. And it seems that most people don't actually daub others in or take advantage of the law's harshest punishments. Most strive to keep their private business private, not wanting their family business called out in court. We don't know of this ever being implemented at all, apart from in two cases, which are Augustus's own daughter and Augustus's own granddaughter, both of whom were called Julia. They were both exiled to islands and died there in probably really awful circumstances. Um, excuse me? Let's circle back to our friend Julia. She and Papa Augustus have what you'd call a contentious relationship. She's much loved by the people, but headstrong and maybe just a little bit wild. He doesn't like her friends, and he doesn't like her fashion. In a scene that many parents from our era might recognize, we're told that one day Julia comes into Dad's presence wearing what he deems to be too revealing an outfit. The next day, when she comes back wearing something more modest, he tells her how much more appropriate it is for the daughter of Augustus. And she says, probably with a very saucy eyebrow raise, Today I dress to be looked at by my father, yesterday to be looked at by my husband. She is a thorn in his side when it comes to his Julian laws. But hey, Agrippa seems happy, she's popping out plenty of babies for the dynasty, and she's liked by the people at large. So, very well. But things change in 12 when the studly Agrippa dies. Julia is deeply saddened by his passing, though it must be said that she wasn't always faithful. 
Hey, he was away a lot, and a whole lot older, and, you know, it's not like she married him of her own free will. You have to wonder if this young, intelligent, passionate woman has some deep-seated rage about her father's controlling behavior. Well, I mean, she's an ideal case of someone who is serially, serially married off. And, and if she hadn't, you know, got into trouble with Augustus and his marriage laws, then probably she would have, might have been married off again, who knows? But yeah, she's a, a great example of how that could seem uh, very heavy-handed for women. It comes to the fore that she took on a series of lovers, and she wasn't all that discreet about it. Of her wanton ways, Macrobius gives us this gem. When people who knew about her shocking behaviour said they were surprised that she, who distributed her favours so widely, gave birth to sons who were so like Agrippa, she said, I never take on a passenger unless the ship is full. Meaning, she doesn't sleep with anyone else until she's already pregnant. Damn, girl! Augustus definitely gives her several talking tos about her indiscretions over the years, but he convinces himself that, as Macrobius tells us, His daughter was light-hearted, almost to the point of indiscretion, but above reproach. She's just a little bit of a wild child is all. Frustrating, yes, but nothing he can't handle. Macrobius also tells us that Augustus often tells his friends that He had two somewhat wayward daughters, the Roman Republic and Julia. So at this point, she's had plenty of kids and should be allowed a certain amount of freedom. But Augustus is like, Well, you know, I did make that rule about widows having to get remarried. What's that? You've born more than three kids, so you're exempt? Well, yes, but darling, you make such a wonderful political tool. The thing is, Augustus is desperate for an heir. He planned to give his spot to Julia's young sons, with Agrippa there to act as their guardian, to look after things until they were old enough, but now he's gone. He needs someone else on standby. And so Livia, for probably the thousandth time, pushes her son Tiberius to the front of the line. To tie him more firmly to his family, Augustus decides to marry him and Julia. No matter that Julia's barely even out of mourning, and Tiberius is already happily married to a woman he likes quite a lot. And as part of that process as being the kind of nominated heir, he is forced to marry Augustus's daughter, Julia. But to do that, he has to divorce his wife, Vipsania. And he did not want to divorce Vipsania. He's supposed to have been um, very annoyed by that and really resentful. And Vipsania, I think, was, according to Suetonius, she, she was also very much invested in that marriage. And he hated Julia. The feeling is decidedly mutual. Julia thinks Tiberius is way beneath her. Tiberius thinks that Julia is, how shall we put it, a deplorable hussy. Octavia, who's been lying low this whole time, lives just long enough to see Tiberius and Julia get hitched. Is she concerned about the role Livia might be playing behind the scenes with her brother? Is she worried about what her family will become? We don't know, but Augustus is devastated by the loss of her. R.I.P., you queen of the high road. Julia grumblingly does her duty. In 9 BCE, when Tiberius comes home from some military successes, Julia and Livia serve as hostesses of some of the festivities they throw. It's the first time women are known to preside over triumph festivities. Her son Drusus, too, is doing well. He's been a success out on the battlefield and is much loved by the public. He's married Octavia's daughter, Antonia, and they've had several kids together. Germanicus, Claudius, and Lavilla. Germanicus is also an important name to earmark for later. But tragedy strikes that year when Drusus dies in a riding accident. 
Livia and Tiberius are both devastated by the loss. But Livia isn't going to become a shut-in like her sister-in-law. So instead, she swallows her feelings and keeps a stiff upper lip, which famously wins her a lot of praise with Roman writers. But you have to wonder what's going on behind that brave face. Meanwhile, Livia's remaining son is not going along with his mom's plans for his greatness. In 7 BCE, he tells Augustus he wants to step out of the line of succession and retire from public life. Augustus is displeased, and Livia does everything she can to change his mind, but he won't listen. He goes and lives in Rhodes for the next seven years, some say because he's really not interested in being the next emperor, while others say it's to put as much room between him and his wife, Julia, as possible. Because my, is that marriage not going well? Though Julia bears Tiberius a son, a boy who dies in infancy, they have continued to loathe each other. By 7 BCE, the couple are living apart, far apart. Augustus gets increasingly frustrated with Julia's wild antics, and she refuses to listen to his stern lectures. She's a grown-ass woman and sick of being told what to do, perhaps acting out against the role he's tried to force her into all her life. She becomes more flagrant in her affairs and indiscretions. This goes against everything Augustus says he stands for. And I think part of the problem with Julia is that she didn't, she clearly didn't play that game. She didn't, I wonder whether he would even have cared about her adultery if it had been kept very quiet. But people knew about it, and that was the problem, I think. So he had to make that, he had to make the appearance of coming down in a heavy handed way on her. Angry and betrayed, Augustus can no longer turn a blind eye, calling Julia shameless beyond any taunt of shamelessness. Seneca says that Augustus is forced to react. He has an edict read out in front of the Senate detailing all of her many sins. Scores of lovers, having sex in public, and on the rostra no less. And that she was so into her sexy time that she sometimes worked as a lady for hire. That's cold, Dad. In 2 BCE, after calling Julia a disease in my flesh, Augustus dissolves her marriage to Tiberius, then has her arrested for adultery and treason. Real dad of the year over here. And here's a juicy tidbit. There are hints in the ancient sources that this move is less about her sex life and more because she gets involved in a political plot against him. Several of her supposed lovers and co-conspirators are exiled. Another, one of the sons of Mark Antony and Fulvia, and one of the kids Octavia brought up as her own, is forced to commit suicide. Oh my. Augustus exiles his daughter to the tiny island of Pandateria. This is not a situation where she's sipping Mai Tais on a beach with tanned pool boys to fan her. This is a Lord of the Fly-style nightmare, with no wine and no visitors. Her mom, the long-ago hard-done-by Scribonia, though, decides to join her, so at least Julia won't have to bear it alone. As the years go by, Augustus doesn't relent. He even gives orders that when Julia dies there, he doesn't want her buried in his mausoleum. In 4 CE, she's moved to Regium on the mainland, but is still forced to live as an exile. In 14 CE, Tiberius cuts off her allowance, and some say she dies of starvation. Pretty harsh. What hand, if any, does Livia play in all this? Does she fight for Julia, or push Augustus to exile her for her son Tiberius' sake? Luckily, Julia's scandalous exit from Roman society doesn't ruin her son's prospects. Gaius and Lucius are still being groomed for the top spot, but then tragedy strikes again. Both boys die within two years of each other. Tacitus writes that their lives are Prematurely cut off by destiny, 
or by their stepmother's treachery. Yes, Tacitus, let's blame Livia, because why not? It can't be denied that this turn of events results in something Livia has long wanted. Augustus is now forced to officially adopt 44-year-old Tiberius and make him come back to Rome as his official successor. As part of the deal, Tiberius is forced to adopt Germanicus. That's the son of Octavia's daughter Antonia and Livia's son Drusus, in case you weren't keeping track of the twisty family tree. Germanicus ties together Augustus's lineage and Livia's, and so Augustus wants him in the line of succession. But for now, it looks like it's Livia's son who is going to rule their world after all. In 14 CE, at the age of 75, Augustus falls gravely ill. He's traveling when he does, and Livia is right there beside him. Tacitus says that she stays by his side, governing all official business. For Livia had surrounded the house and its approaches with strict watch, and favorable bulletins were published from time to time. She's also there when he dies. His last words are to her, his wife of 52 years. Live mindful of our marriage, Livia, and farewell. His body is burned on a pyre for five days, during which time Livia refuses to leave it. When there is nothing left but bones and ashes, she lovingly collects them so she can take them back home. But there's another, darker version of Augustus's demise. Some say that in his final days, he was reconsidering his decision to make Tiberius his heir. He was thinking of changing it to Julia's last surviving son, Agrippa Posthumus. That guy, by the way, was also sent to Exile Island by Augustus in 6 CE for what he said was his beastly nature. In the annals, Tacitus talks about Livia's secret intrigues, writing that she had gained such a hold on the aged Augustus that he drove out as an exile into the island of Planaxia, his only grandson. Apparently, that whole exile thing was Livia's fault, naturally. At any rate, anxious for her son, it's said that Livia brings her husband some ripe green figs to snack on, his favorite. Little does he know that they're smeared in poison. Not long after, Agrippa Posthumus is killed by one of his own guards. How convenient. Is Livia a cold-blooded murderer, willing to end her husband's life to promote her son? I find it doubtful, especially since this story will be reused for future empresses pretty much verbatim. I think it speaks to an anxiety about Livia's power, though. Before Augustus, no woman had so much public currency, popularity, or influence. Plenty of people are nervous about what a woman with that much power might achieve. You know, I think that it's doubly hard to get at Livia's legacy because the ancient sources are so absolutely damning. She has, I mean, in a way, she has more influence over what's coming next than anybody else because it's her son who becomes the next emperor and however you think that happened whether it happens whether you go with the conspiracy theory that comes kind of from tacitus that she manipulated everybody else out of the way possibly by killing them off until the only person left was her son tiberius or it's just that she she managed to maintain this marriage which by the way is sort of impressive there's also this. Augustus does something interesting in his will regarding Livia. When Augustus dies, he adopts her in his will. So she becomes, she technically has the name, legally has the name at that point, Julia Augusta, Julia Augusta. And she becomes, in to all intents and purposes, his legal daughter, um, which gives her kind of more powers to inherit and 
more authority, and that's why he does it. And that's how Livia becomes Augusta. She will live for many years longer, serving in many ways as Rome's matriarch. She once had the ear of Rome's most powerful man, and now she does again in her son. And in our next episodes, we'll see how far her influence might stretch. Livia, Octavia, Julia. So much of what we know is colored by our ancient, man-focused sources, and there's so much about them we may never find out. But we do know that these women lived in fascinating times, endured some real hardships, and showed extraordinary strength. They created a dynasty that would define the Roman Empire. They paved the way for the imperial women who came after, trailblazers who carved a path up the mountain, step by step as they made tracks in the snow. Who will follow in those footsteps, and what will their lives look like? Bend the knee, friends, because the Agrippinas are coming. Until next time. for listening. If you like The Explorers, tell a few friends, make sure to subscribe to the show, and leave a review wherever you listen. It really helps the show reach new listeners. For a transcript of this episode, including a list of my sources and lots of visuals, check out my website, theexplorerspodcast.com. While you're there, scope out my new book recommendations page. I'm now an affiliate of bookshop.org, where you can buy some of my favorite books on women in history while supporting independent bookstores. I get a little kickback with every order, so you'll be helping to support my work as well. To support the show, you can become a patron, which will give you access to exclusive perks and extras, including the bonus episode and the Hasmonean women I mentioned earlier. For merchandise, including art prints and lady-centric timelines, check out my Explores Etsy shop. Come find me on Instagram and Facebook at The Explores Podcast and Twitter at The Explores Pod. Special thanks to Dr. Rhiannon Evans for going time-traveling with us on this particular journey. You can hear her talk more about ancient Rome over at the Emperors of Rome podcast, which I highly recommend. The music you just enjoyed comes courtesy of Michael Levy. Thanks also go to Mr. Explores for my theme music, logo, and help producing this episode, and the following legends for their vocal stylings. Moxie Labouche, who played Livia, Stephen Reichel, who played Augustus, Sean from Stories of Your and Yours podcast as our Roman legal reader, Paul Gablonski as Tacitus and Suetonius, Brendan Cousins as Macrobius, and my brother John as assorted sassy Roman men. Lucius Vinicius. (laughs) (laughs) I can't do it! Welcome to my pain, mate.